Welcome in to Outkick the Show. I am your fearless leader, Clay Travis. I have been on the road what feels like for the past two months. I was trying to keep track of all the different places I've been. But last week, I was in uh, L.A. and New York. Um, And I am now back for this entire week, all of next week, and then much of the next week before uh, I'll be out a little bit in June. Kids are almost out of school. I hope all of you have been fantastic without me, but I know you've missed me desperately, and it's good to be back. Uh, As always, you can uh, always listen to the radio program. I'm almost always there, uh, Clay and Buck Show. And certainly you can find me on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, everywhere. Thank you to all of you on YouTube. Uh, We are now up to, I believe it's basically 850,000 subscribers uh, on YouTube and growing off and on like crazy. Comments are phenomenal. uh, And I thank all of you, as I have said for some time. I love all of you. We're growing fast everywhere. But on YouTube in particular, uh, you your comments are my favorite. All right, let's talk. We got a ton of different topics because I've been out uh, and I want to hit it all of these. Buckle up. We got a lot of topics. Let's start here. Uh, Nuggets are up 3-0 on the Lakers uh, and the Heat are up 3-0 on the Celtics, meaning we're headed for an NBA Finals of uh, the Nuggets versus the Heat barring an incredible comeback from 3-0 down. And in fact, we may get double sweeps. Uh, We'll see what kind of effort. I think the Lakers will win tonight. Uh, I do, because I don't think they want to go out getting swept. I do think the Celtics are basically done. I think the Lakers playing at home helps. Um, But some of you have probably seen the usual uh, NBA media propagandists are out talking about how incredible the NBA ratings are. And I haven't really weighed in very much because I haven't watched uh, a lot of the NBA playoffs, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, but the data is pretty clear what happened here, okay? The highest rated series, it appears, for the entire NBA playoffs is going to end up being the Warriors against the Lakers in the second round of the playoffs. Why does that matter? Because the narrative was set by the usual NBA uh, lunatics, right? The left-wing media that gobbles up anything that the NBA wants to put out. Uh, They were like, oh my God, playoff ratings are unbelievable. And I said, you can go back and look. I said, no, they just got the Warriors and the Lakers in the second round. And it's going to be the highest rated series of the entire playoffs. Think about that for a minute. More people were interested in Warriors-Lakers in the second round of the NBA playoffs than are watching the Eastern or Western Conference Finals. In fact, right now, uh, the Eastern Conference Finals are down a little bit off of last year, uh, and the Western Conference Finals are up a little bit, right? There's not very much uh, difference in those ratings, roughly flat, and if they end up in sweeps, fewer people are going to watch maybe than ever. And we're headed towards an NBA Finals, which will not be watched that much. And some of you out there are like, well, I don't know why people are not going to watch. I love uh, the Nuggets, and I love the Heat, and I love Jimmy Butler, and I like Jokic, and I like Murray. And Okay, I get it. You're the same people who argued that the, uh, that the NCAA tournament was going to have a high viewership, even though you had UConn going up against, what was it, Miami? 
I think, if I remember correctly, UConn-Miami and FAU against San Diego State. Uh, And then the title game was San Diego State against UConn, and nobody watched because people like big brands that they care about, all right? The strength of a sport in general is it doesn't matter who goes to the Super Bowl. Basically, 100 million people are going to watch. Now, we just set an all-time Super Bowl record, Eagles against Chiefs. That was big. Bigger rating would have been Chiefs against Cowboys, for instance, right? Because the Cowboys have a massive fan base. But by and large, the more the teams are that advance matter in terms of viewership, the less strong the overall brand of the sport is, right? Um, And the overall brand of the sport in the NFL is the strongest. The NBA is very weak. Um, And the NBA has set consistent 20, 21, 22, now 23 all-time lows in many different aspects. For instance, the All-Star game lost 80% of its audience between the last time it was played in Salt Lake City and this past year, right? And so the NBA propaganda have been trying to sell you on, oh, this is incredible. It's unbelievable how many people are watching. You can't trust the media, right? Got to look at the data. I know many of you trust me. I appreciate that. The NBA got woke and they went broke. That's what the data reflects. A lot of people won't tell you that because they don't want to acknowledge the impact, right? And I'll tie this in. Uh, I enjoy watching uh, Jokic. I enjoy watching Murray. The NBA is desperately trying to pretend that its political era never happened. I think the legacy of LeBron James is he destroyed much of which, uh, much of that which Bird uh, and, uh, and Magic and Jordan built. And I, I think I endorsed this movie on this show a while back. Go watch Air. Air is such a phenomenal movie about Michael Jordan, Phil Knight, Nike signing Michael Jordan, and how they came to become a prominent force in basketball. Jordan and Magic and Bird understood that they had to sell basketball to the American audience. They worked desperately to make you like them. Today's NBA players because of the way the cable and satellite bundle is set up and because of how disconnected their salaries are from attendance and television viewership and all those things, think that what they do doesn't matter. And that's really the legacy of, for instance, the load management aspect. Hey, I'm just not going to play tonight. right? Even his final year, when he was over 40 playing for the Wizards, I believe I'm correct, Michael Jordan played in 82 games. The Jordan, the Barkley, the Ewings, uh, the John Stocktons, the Carl Malones, that era of the NBA, the 90s, they were trying to sell you on their product being awesome. And they wanted you to be a fan, regardless of what your background was. And then LeBron came along, and he recognized that he was never going to be Jordan. I think he got frustrated And so he decided that he was going to be Muhammad Ali instead. The difference is Muhammad Ali actually stood up for things that matter. And also Ali was smart. I'm not sure LeBron's very smart on anything other than basketball. And as a result, LeBron has tanked the overall NBA brand and the viewership reflects it. And that's why I think the Bud Light story is such a big one. Over the past couple of weeks, I haven't been on with you Uh, on OutKick the show, 
But the Bud Light audience, consumers, have continued to tank. There's a front page story in the Wall Street Journal today saying that Bud Light sales were down 28% in the first week of May. And I am hearing, and I saw where Tommy Laren put this out too, that Bud Light consumption is down so much that they're trying to give it away and they're just going to have to destroy a ton of Bud Light that's never been consumed at all because it has a sale-by date. Um, and this is now the most successful uh, boycott that I can ever remember by conservative or right-leaning audience of a product. Basically, Bud Light has gotten Dixie Chicks. And I don't know that I've ever seen anything like this happen, even on the left. Bud Light insulted its consumers, said they were too fratty, said they liked out-of-touch humor, and people decided, you know what, Bud Light's not so good that I'm going to stay committed to it. And I think this story is being tracked now and followed. It's an important message that's being sent because now every marketing team is looking around and they're saying, oh, there is a consequence of going too far to the right. Sorry, too far to the left. You can alienate the right in this country. Because for a long time, nobody lost their job for being too woke, right? You could go as far left-wing as you wanted with any brand. Now, I think there have been real consequences for the NBA. I think there have been real consequences for Disney. But the tangible impact of Bud Light, go back and read back in early April when people started saying, hey, I'm not going to drink Bud Light. Go back and read all the sneering responses from people on the left in the country like, yeah, so what? There'll never be any impact here. No, Bud Light's business is collapsing. And now it's filtering over to Budweiser, to McUltra. I think you have to keep the pressure on. Go buy another product. Drink another beer. You can drink my own beer gratis if you are in uh, the state of Tennessee. We're selling a lot of this, right? Um, There's the hat. Uh, And go buy any beer other than an Anheuser-Busch product until Anheuser-Busch apologizes for insulting all of its audience. I think this is an important message to pour it on. Now, I don't think it's just Bud Light. Disney also, although people are not covering it, Disney Plus, do you know, have you noticed what's happened? Disney Plus is losing subscribers in the United States. Not a lot of attention. Let me repeat that. Disney Plus is losing subscribers in the United States. They have already peaked and they are now beginning to decline. Why is that happening? I think because Disney is making a really poor decision to go to fight Ron DeSantis over reasonable bills that are being passed in the state of Florida. Remember, DeSantis fought to keep Disney World open. Of any governor out there, I'm not sure there's anyone who did more during COVID to help Disney's business. But look at what's going on. Disney Plus has reached its apex and now is losing subscribers. ESPN Plus has almost reached its apex. It's barely growing at all now. Okay, what's going on? Do you know that Disney has lost nearly $11 billion on streaming so far? That's $11 billion. They are trying to replace a collapsing business model, that is cable and satellite television, of which ESPN is the highest revenue-producing station in all of cable and satellite television. They are trying to reproduce the money that they make there through streaming 
and the reality is they're now starting to lose substantial amounts of revenue on the cable and satellite bundle while they're not making any money at all in streaming. And this is where I've been right for years, and a lot of other people have been wrong. Disney stock basically about to go under $90 a share, I think. It hasn't moved in nine years during the time that I've been telling you what trouble they are in. The only reason they are above water right now is actually the theme parks because streaming is a disastrous business so far. They've lost $11 billion. Again, in other words, to break even on streaming, they have to make $11 billion in profit. Think about how hard that is to do. Before, they are now in the hole $11 billion. Before they can make a dollar, they have to make $11 billion in profits before they erase what they've already lost. And I think they're in a real significant problem now. Now, the Wall Street Journal had a front page article where they talked about, hey, we're going to launch ESPN+. Plus. I don't think that's going to make the money back. I really don't. Because a lot of people are not going to subscribe to ESPN+. Plus, and also, ESPN+, Plus is seasonal. What do I mean by ESPN Plus is seasonal? I mean, if you're a big football fan, you might subscribe to ESPN Plus for football season, but you only pay for three or four months. It's going to have to cost a ton of money. You know the average person is paying nearly $10 a month for ESPN programming right now? It's $120 a year. A lot of those people never watch ESPN. So when they go direct to consumer they're going to have to charge you $20 or $30 a month for you to subscribe to ESPN. You're going to end up paying way more for streaming than you ever did for the cable and satellite bundle. And so ESPN is collapsing. The ESPN business model is collapsing and bringing down Disney. And if they didn't own theme parks, there would be an even more substantial cost uh, associated with this than the fact that Disney stock is basically the same price right now that it was in like 2015. Think about that for a minute. If you bought Disney stock in 2015 and just sat on it and haven't done a single thing for eight years, you've lost money in real terms, not even including the cost relative to the S&P 500's growth, uh, relative to the overall aspect of, uh, of inflation, which is still at... 5 or 6% or whatever the heck it is, um, you've lost real money by holding Disney stock for the last eight years. I don't know how they fix this. I don't know how they fix it, but I know going woke is hurting them. And I don't buy into, what is the new movie coming out? Little Mermaid? I'll give you, again, a positive. I went and watched Guardians of the Galaxy 3. I really enjoyed it. Took my kids. We watched the superhero movies. They liked them. Thought it was good. Zero woke ridiculousness in that. Little Mermaid, though. Look at how out of ideas Disney is. They're now taking animated movies and turning them into real-life movies. Is there very much demand for this? If you like The Little Mermaid, why wouldn't you just watch the cartoon? I don't think the real-life Little Mermaid is going to somehow rescue Disney. I think Disney's in trouble. Even the Marvel movies have not been doing as well. Disney has killed, to a large extent, the Star Wars franchise. A lot of Star Wars people have rejected it. And I see these as all connected stories. The NBA, Disney, Target. Don't get me started on dick-tucking bathing suits for kids at Target. It's crazy. Uh, Bud Light, 
all of these companies lost their way, instead of just trying to put out great products and try to appeal to everyone, they decided to get woke, and I think it's going to make them go broke. I really do. And this is an un- unfortunate consequence, because I get it. A lot of you out there are like, I just want to watch movies. I just want to drink a beer. I just want to go to a department store and not have to think about the politics behind it. I think, unfortunately, you have to make conscious decisions in the short term in order for things to be better in the longer term. Because the only way these companies change their direction is if there becomes real consequences for going far left wing. I'm guaranteeing you every marketing company of a large product right now is saying, let's not do to our company what Bud Light did to theirs. And until you have that fear of your business collapsing because you go too woke, you'll just keep going further and further left wing in your, uh, in your marketing, in your advertising, and in your perspective. Speaking of left wing, Ron DeSantis is supposed to announce sometime this week uh, the NAACP has decided that it's not safe for black people to go to Florida, uh, that they need to put out a warning. That's despite the fact, I want to make sure I get this right, I've got this, uh, this detail in here. Uh, the chairman of the NAACP, a guy named Leon Russell, actually lives in Tampa. And in his Twitter uh, profile, it says chairman of the NAACP board of directors. Uh, they've issued a travel advisory to Florida saying it's not safe for black people. I talked to my wife as soon as I saw this story come down. The number of institutions or individuals that you can trust in America, I'm not sure it's ever been lower. Everybody knows this is BS from the NAACP, right? Black people are not in danger if they travel to the state of Florida. If you're a black parent and you're going to Disney World, your family's not in danger. If you are a single guy or single girl and a bunch of your buddies, you're going down to Miami for a fun beach weekend and going out clubbing and having an incredible time, as many people do, you're not in danger because of the state of Florida, all right? The data reflects, and I have to say this because it's important, if you actually want to be afraid, right, if you are terribly afraid that violence is going to be done to you, the data reflects you should be afraid of two people, uh, two individuals or two groups. If you're a woman, your boyfriend or your husband. This is like the whole lifetime network, right? Most people who harm you are going to be in close proximity to you, i.e. your friends or family. That's what the data reflects. You aren't likely to be a victim of random violence. Unlikely. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Just means it's unlikely. Second part of this. You're in danger the most from people of your own race. So if you were black... The people that you should be afraid of are black. If you are white, the people you're afraid of likely to be white. If you are Hispanic, if you are Asian, you are overwhelmingly likely in this country to be a victim of someone of your same race, of oftentimes your same friends or family group, right? The people you know or the people who look the most like you are the people who are most often to, uh, to harm you. Now, this whole identity politics era that we're in now tries to convince you all the time, oh, someone who doesn't like you, look like you is the real problem, right? The media is obsessed, for instance, with black people who have issues of violence with white people. Statistically, that's almost a 0% chance, right? If you are black, 
you are unlikely to get put into a chokehold by a white guy, right? Yet the media overwhelmingly makes you think that that's true because they want to sell the narrative that race and racism is a huge issue in America today. Um, And look, the data reflects that many Americans unfortunately now believe that. I shared a Gallup poll that I think is sad um, that reflects that for many of you out there who remember growing up in the 90s, in the 2000s, in the 80s, I know it's crazy, but people tended to get along. Tended to get along really well. It's not just me remembering things. In 2004, percentage of black and white people who said relations between the races were, uh, were very or somewhat good versus very or somewhat bad. 72% of people said races were very, race relations very or somewhat good in 2004. Just 26% of people said things were bad, right? So how do we get here? 72 to 26, that's a huge majority of Americans. They said race relations between white and black were very or somewhat good versus very or somewhat bad. You know where we are today? 55% of people say race relations are very or somewhat bad versus 63 uh, like versus 45% or whatever the math is that says they're, they're bad. So think about this for a minute. More people in America now believe that race relations are bad than good. And it's way worse now than 20 years ago. The media convinces you that things are true that are fundamentally not true. This is why the distrust is so high in the media. Um, I trust, I was talking to my wife about this, as I said, if I had to pick one media outlet that I'm not involved in, I think one reason why OutKick has grown so rapidly is many of you trust OutKick. That means a lot to me because I spend basically every hour, every one of my waking hours, trying to make sure that OutKick does a good job on stories, right? We're not perfect, but we try to do a good job. And certainly I spend almost every waking hour also ensuring that I try to do a good job. So I know one reason that many of you are watching or listening to me right now is because you do trust me to do a good job. And you trust me, you may not agree with me, but my facts tend to be right, right? Uh, And that makes my arguments more valid than many of the arguments that are made out there in the media. Um, And so when you break all this down, trust is, I think, so rare. I said the Wall Street Journal is the place that I probably trust in media more than any other place that I'm not working at. There aren't very many, though, because when I know you have lied to me, New York Times lies to me, Washington Post lies to me, MSNBC lies to me, uh, CNN lies to me. I can't trust them. I trust OutKick. We don't lie to you. may not agree with our opinions. We're not going to lie to you. And this goes to, I think, probably the biggest lie that's out there today is what the NAACP is trying to say. Race relations are bad. You're in danger in Florida. You're not. I think most black people know that. But the NAACP used to be a trustworthy organization. It now no longer is. CDC, do you trust them? I don't. IRS, do you trust them? I don't. Department of Justice, do you trust them? I don't. FBI, do you trust them? I don't. What big institutions do you trust? I certainly don't trust Joe Biden. And so... When you look at what's going on here, I think the biggest lie that's being sold 
is the idea that black people are getting regularly killed by police and by white people in particular. This is not statistically remotely true. In fact, a white person is far more likely to be killed by a black person than a black person is to kill a white person. I might have just crossed that up. You, if I'm a white guy, I'm far more likely to be killed by a black person than a black person is to be killed by a white guy. That's what the data reflects. Not even close. So why does the media only cover racial issues where black people are victims and white people are the alleged perpetrators? You know, it's supposed to be Black Lives Matter. It's not supposed to be Black Lives Matter adding a parenthetical if white people are potentially involved in black deaths. Because almost no black death that occurs at the hands of another black person ever becomes news. Look at what just happened in New York City. The only reason that's a story is because a white guy uh, put the, the, the black guy in a chokehold. If that had been a black guy who did it, nobody would have ever paid attention to it. It wouldn't have been a story at all. The only reason it's a story is because a white guy is involved in perpetrating violence against black person. The media lies to you. Hey, Clay Travis here. Hope you guys are enjoying OutKick. The show will have more coming back next. There's another story I saw. And unfortunately, a lot of people believe and, and respect the arguments that are being told. Um, I saw Glenn Greenwald share this. Huge percentages of people still believe the Hunter Biden laptop is Russian disinformation, including 59% of Democrats. 59% of Democrats believe the lie that uh, the Hunter Biden laptop is Russian disinformation. A vast majority, 59 to 41 of Democrats believe it. Now, Republicans know it's real. 79% believe it's real. Still 21% of Republicans believe it's disinformation. And 41% of the American population still believes the Hunter uh, Biden laptop is in fact, uh, Russian disinformation. 41%. Do you think Donald Trump worked in concert with Russia to win the presidency, or is that a fake story? 56% say it's a fake story. That's accurate. 44%, though, still believe that it's a real story. Do you think the Steele dossier that included salacious accusations against Trump in a Russian hotel stated Russia had a tape of what transpired. Was it a true story or was it a false story? 44% of people still believe that's a true story. It's 100% fake. Only 56% believe it's a false story. 71% of Democrats believe it's true. 70% of Democrats believe still in Russia collusion. These are lies. Things that are 100% untrue. The media propagates lies. You have to be very aggressive in who you believe and who you trust. If you believe everything that I say, you shouldn't. Trust but verify. You shouldn't believe everything that I tell you. I work as hard as I can to get my facts right. But I'm human. I get things wrong. You shouldn't trust everything that I say. Be aggressive in the information that you consume. Brit- <laughs> Sorry, Brittany Griner returned, and ESPN covered it like Michael Jordan was coming back to the NBA. 
Um, I'm not kidding. They treated this like it was a major story. The game didn't sell out. And the WNBA coach was upset. She's like, how is this not a sellout? I was like, you do realize that you coach in the WNBA, right? The WNBA product is not very good. Brittany Griner, though, said she's going to stand for the national anthem now that we have traded the merchant of death, probably the worst trade in the history of trades, uh, at least in my life. We got Brittany Griner back, a mediocre WNBA player who refused to stand for the national anthem until now. And in exchange, Russia got the merchant of death. So that, I mean, I'm just going to toss it out there. Random WNBA player, we got, they got one of the foremost uh, proponents of illegal arms dealing in the entire world right as Russia is in the middle of a war with Ukraine. Uh, Yeah, I think Vladimir Putin absolutely dunked balls to the face style on Joe Biden over this trade. But I do love, speaking about the artificial nature of sports, the fact that ESPN tried to sell Brittany Griner's return as if it was some massive media story when the reality is, uh, look, most people didn't care about Brittany Griner then. They certainly don't care about Brittany Griner now. Now, I wish no American was in jail or prison in Russia, but the fact that uh, Biden got absolutely taken to the cleaners over this trade, not a positive story for the United States. I saw this. One of the theses... (laughs) One of my theories has been for some time that uh, we are going to end up with, in the wake of COVID, red being redder and blue being bluer. And I saw this data. This is from the Wall Street Journal. According to the latest census data, New York City lost 468,000 people between April of 2020 and July of 2022, that's 5.3% of its population. That's more people that New York City lost than live in Miami. Other big losers included Chicago, 81,000, L.A., 76,000, and San Francisco, 65,522 people. In fact, San Francisco lost a larger share of its population than any other major city. San Francisco lost 7.5% of its population between April 2020 and July 2022. I believe in general that red states are making rational decisions that are going to lead to economic growth, which provides more freedom for their citizens. I'm happy to live in the state of Tennessee. But I also believe that one of the lessons of COVID was, wait a minute, You have to pay 13% state and local tax to live in California, income tax. You have to pay that also roughly to live in New York or Illinois. I live in Tennessee and pay 0% state income tax. Many of you live in Florida or Texas or Nevada, the states that have 0% state income tax. It's not just that these places like New York, LA, Chicago, and San Francisco are losing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of residents, it's that many of them are the most wealthy. Because think about it. I make over a million dollars a year, pretty easily. If I were living in, uh, let's say I made a million dollars a year, 
if I was living in New York or I was living in California, I would have to pay $130,000 out of my own pocket for the privilege of living in New York or California. Instead, I put that into my pocket living in Tennessee. Think about this for a minute. Just think about it. How much, let's say you make a million dollars a year. You make $10 million, that's an extra $1.3 million in your pocket. The more money you make, the more incentivized you are to leave many of these different states with huge income tax rates. You are paying a massive tax for the privilege of living in cities and states that are falling apart because of left-wing governance. There's more crime. There's homelessness. Your kids are not going to good schools and your family doesn't feel safe. Or you can have way more money and live in a way better run city or state in Tennessee, Texas, or Florida where there's zero state income tax. Google works as a business because every time you go into Google and do a search, the search makes it better. The search results become better. That's the virtuous circle, right? Every use of the product makes it better. I would argue that right now, left-wing cities are declining every single day and right-wing states are succeeding every single day. And that flywheel of excellence on right uh, red states and that flywheel of deficit in blue states are both spinning all day long every day. And the red are gaining and the blue are losing, which makes more people want to move to red and makes more people want to lose, leave the left. And I think one of the big stories in America over the next generation is going to be red states are going to thrive and blue states are going to have major, major issues. And you're seeing that people are voting with their feet by fleeing California, New York, and Illinois and moving to other places. Pay attention to this story. 7.5% of San Francisco's population has left, and it's not just a random sampling. By and large, that 7.5% leaving San Francisco or that 5% leaving New York City are the wealthiest, the people paying the highest rates of tax the people who are allowing the city to have its success. You might have heard us on Clay and Buck. We're talking about income tax. Did you know that the bottom half of the United States population in terms of income pays 0% of federal income tax every year? Think about that. Over half of Americans don't pay a dollar in federal income tax. And in fact, the top 1% of earners, humbly, I'm there, we pay 40% of federal income tax. The top 1% pays 40%. The bottom half pays zero. How sustainable is that? Just want you to think about it. We also had, I mentioned the Russia collusion story. And I've got an easy question. Durham report came out. I wasn't doing a lot of these shows. I want to react to the Durham report in this way by using a sports comparison for you. When it came out that Reggie Bush got improper benefits, do you know what the Heisman Trophy did? They took back his Heisman Trophy. And they said, you never should have gotten this Heisman Trophy. Now, that's despite the fact that Reggie Bush, 
his performance on the field was not impacted by what kind of money he got off the field, right? I would understand it a little bit more if there are steroids involved, something like that. But Reggie Bush's excellence at Southern Cal as a running back was in no way impacted by money that he may have gotten while he was at Southern Cal. So I think Reggie Bush deserves his Heisman Trophy back. I've said that for some time. But I want you to think about this. A lot of Major League Baseball players not in the Hall of Fame, right? Barry Bonds, I believe, not in the Hall of Fame. Roger Clemens, not in the Hall of Fame. Mark McGuire, not in the Hall of Fame. Rafael Palmero. He can run through a whole list. People that use steroids, not in Major League Baseball's Hall of Fame. How is it that sports is more punitive? Let's just use the Reggie Bush example. In sports, the Heisman Trophy has a higher standard for pulling, a lower standard for pulling the Heisman Trophy back than the Pulitzer Board does for all of the Pulitzers that they rewarded for Russia collusion, which we now know was 100% a lie. How has the Pulitzer not taken back all of the awards that it gave to all of the journalists who spread the lie of Russia collusion associated with Trump? Why do they get to keep their awards for what we now know was false reporting? Isn't that the equivalent of steroids in baseball on some level? How is it that the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame has a higher standard for baseball players, which doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, than the Pulitzer does for reporting on issues of national interest? And how in the world is the Heisman Trophy Trust, the downtown athletic club, more of a stickler for Heisman Trophy issues than the Pulitzer is? They took back Reggie Bush's Heisman over him getting paid to play football. By the way, who cares if he got paid? But they aren't doing a single thing for all of the illegal, uh, all of the inaccurate Pulitzer Awards. I just want you guys to think about that. What standard are we rolling with here that sports is more stringent on its awards than journalism is? I just want you to think about that. How is it that the Heisman Trophy and the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame both care more about their guys being eligible than the Pulitzer does for all of its crap awards that it gave out for fake, literal fake news that we all know is inaccurate now? Tim Scott has announced that he is going to enter the 2024 race. Um, I think Tim Scott effectively is running to try to get VP or maybe a spot in the uh, Trump cabinet in the event Trump won. But Trump says, good luck to Senator Tim Scott in entering the Republican presidential primary race. It is rapidly loading up with lots of people. And Tim is a big step up from Ron DeSanctimonious, who is totally unelectable. I got opportunity zones done with Tim a big deal that has been highly successful. Good luck, Tim. So Tim Scott's 57 years old, uh, not married, no children, uh, and Donald Trump is praising him as he enters the race. Would not stun me if Trump is the nominee if Tim Scott ends up as vice presidential candidate. But what I would point out is, in general, 
Tim Scott is running on narrative, which I respect. He's basically running the Obama 2008 campaign, which is America's so amazing. Let me share with you my quintessential American success story. Uh, Light on policy so far, strong on narrative, strong on story. But why is Trump only attacking Ron DeSantis? It's because right now, there's really just a two-man race for the Republican nomination. It's Trump or it's DeSantis. Everybody else, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, everybody else who's in this race, if Chris Christie enters, if Sununu enters, if Mike Pence enters, they're all running with no chance, basically, of ever being president. And all you have to do to know what the real race is is watch. Trump is still just attacking DeSantis. He welcomed Tim Scott into the race while attacking DeSantis. DeSantis supposedly going to enter this week. We'll see how it goes once he actually enters. Finally, I've been talking a lot because I haven't been on for a while. I think almost an hour straight before we're done here. I want to give a shout-out to Justice Gorsuch, who wrote an opinion that I think many of you need to go read. I shared it over the weekend, and it dealt directly with COVID and all of the lies that we were told associated with COVID. And this is, I believe, a big deal. And I want to scroll down and make sure I get it because I want to read a couple of the quotes from Justice Gorsuch, which I think are so incredibly important uh, for so many of you uh, to read. Um, Justice Gorsuch, in particular, uh, shared a, uh, a really important message. And that was how easy it was to get so many people to give up so many of their rights with almost no fighting back against it. Um, and this is, uh, let me scroll down. I want to make sure that I get it. Um, if you actually look at this data, Justice Gorsuch made such, I believe, a compelling case about what occurred uh, in America during COVID. Remember, Joe Biden tried to force 84 million people to get the COVID shot. And I said, skip over the first four pages because it's a civil procedure analysis and just go to the final four pages that Justice Gorsuch wrote. And I'm going to read a couple of quotes for you all here from that because I don't think this is getting enough attention. Uh, Since March of 2020, and I'm reading from Justice Gorsuch's Supreme Court opinion, we may have experienced the greatest intrusions on civil liberties in the peacetime history of this country. Executive officials across the country issued emergency decrees on a breathtaking scale. Governors and local leaders imposed lockdown orders, forcing people to remain in their homes. They shuttered businesses and schools, public and private. They closed churches, even as they allowed casinos and other favored businesses to carry on. They threatened violators, not just with civil penalties, but with criminal sanctions too. They surveilled church parking lots, recorded license plates, and issued notices warning that attendance at even outdoor services satisfying all state social distancing and hygiene requirements 
could amount to criminal conduct. They divided cities and neighborhoods into color-coded zones, forced individuals to fight for their freedoms in court on emergency timetables, and then changed their color-coded schemes when defeat in court seemed imminent. Federal executive officials entered the act, too, not just with emergency immigration decrees. They deployed a public health agency to regulate landlord-tenant relations nationwide. They used a workplace safety agency to issue a vaccination mandate for most working Americans. They threatened to fire non-compliant employees and warned that service members who refused to vaccinate might face dishonorable discharge and confinement. Along the way, it seems federal officials may have pressured social media companies to suppress information about pandemic policies with which they disagreed. This is all from Justice Gorsuch's uh, opinion. Um, Doubtless, many lessons can be learned from this chapter in our history, and hopefully serious efforts will be made to study it. One lesson might be this. Fear and the desire for safety are powerful forces. They can lead to a clamor for action, almost any action, as long as someone does something to address a perceived threat. A leader or an expert who claims he can fix everything if only we do exactly as he says can prove an irresistible force. We do not need to confront a bayonet. We, only need, we need only a nudge before we willingly abandon the, abandon the nicety of requiring laws to be adopted by our legislative representatives and accept rule by decree. Along the way, we will accede to the loss of many cherished civil liberties, the right to worship freely, to debate public policy without censorship, together with friends or family, or simply to leave our homes. We may even cheer on those who ask us to disregard our normal lawmaking processes and forfeit our personal freedoms. Of course, this is no new story, even the ancients warned democracies can degenerate toward autocracy in the face of fear. But maybe we've learned another lesson too. The concentration of power in the hands of so few may be efficient and sometimes popular, but it does not tend toward sound government. However wise one person or his advisors may be, that is no substitute for the wisdom of the whole of the American people that can be tapped in the legislative process. Decisions produced by those who indulge no criticism are rarely as good as those produced after robust and uncensored debate. Decisions announced on the fly are rarely as wise as those that come after careful deliberation Decisions made by a few often yield unintended consequences that may be avoided when more are consulted. Autocracies have always suffered these defects. Maybe, hopefully, we have relearned these lessons too. I just... Then here's his close. 
Make no mistake, decisive executive action is sometimes necessary and appropriate. But if emergency decrees promise to solve some problems, they threaten to generate others. And rule by indefinite emergency edict risks leaving all of us with a shell of a democracy and civil liberties just as hollow. I read from it because I know a lot of you are not going to read from it yourself. We talk about being on the right and wrong side of history an awful lot in this country. Very rarely do we see, in my opinion, something so perfectly distilled in less than four pages that lays out the true right side of history. All of the COVID censors were wrong. All of the authoritarians who tried to lock down your life, kept your kids out of school, tried to make you wear a mask, they were wrong. They still not have, have still not admitted they were wrong. But the long legacy of history, I believe, will ultimately prove who was on the right and wrong side of history. And I'm confident I was on the right side by standing up for freedom, for democracy, and for all of you to make the choices that were the right ones for you and your family. And I'm confident that Justice Gorsuch's opinion in the years ahead will make a mockery of many of my most strident critics who argued that kids needed to be in masks and that if you didn't get the COVID shot, you were killing grandmas. Shame on all of you. You were wrong. I was right. And the reward ultimately is not just historical cogency, It's, in the meantime, a massive growth in our audience, and that's why I'm proud to lead OutKick and why I am excited to still be on the Clay and Buck Show and have one of the biggest audiences in media. Trust, accuracy, honesty, they're rare. We've got them. You should spend more time with us and less with others. Love you. Thank you. Go subscribe to all of our content. This has been OutKick, the show.